You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have Ryan Rapp, Head of Product Discovery at Pairwise. The website is pairwise.com. We're going to be talking about uh, the creation of new crops through uh, various gene editing techniques. So, Ryan, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me here today. Yeah, so tell me about uh, Pairwise. What's the, uh, you know, the premise of the company? Yeah, so we're a pretty new company. We're just coming up on our one-year anniversary, actually, on March 25th. We're still here, so that's fantastic. But our real mission is to take the power of gene editing and bring it to the actual consumer, the protosome. What we are hoping to do is give the consumer a really positive experience with produce, um, some type of fruit or vegetable that they couldn't have had access to otherwise uh, without the power of gene editing. Okay, so what, what specific crops are you focusing on and what's the goal, the metric? Yeah, so I mean, so right now we have a we have two streams sort of going. One stream is really around a um, collaboration that we've entered into with Bear Crop Science, and that is really focused on the row crops. And when we say row crops, what we really mean is cotton, corn, soybean, canola, wheat, those sorts of um, large-scale agriculture things. On the consumer side, um, right now we're exploring a bunch of different options um, with fruits and vegetables, things that the consumer might not have um, had access to before or bringing them something in a way that makes eating healthy more convenient for them. We haven't finalized what our product concepts are right now. We're doing a lot of technical work to help hammer that out in the laboratory. But one of the examples that we typically use is um, you can imagine something like um, a pitless cherry, right? Um, So a lot of parents won't feed cherries to their children because they're obviously and rightly so concerned about them choking on that pit. Um, even for an adult, it's, you know, not the socially most graceful food because you obviously have to spit out that pit in a public situation. But on the other hand, there's a lot of great qualities about cherries, right? Their flavor is wonderful. Um, they're high in antioxidants. They're very healthy berry to be eating or very healthy fruit to be eating. Um, but they're really limited in the sense that they're only available for a short time of the year. And they are also um you know, you got to spit that. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned a few crops. Which crop is this again? Uh, cherries. Cherries. Okay. Uh, cherry, any right? Particular kind of cherries, but go ahead. Yeah, go ahead with the cherries. Yeah. So any cherry that you can think of, like a Rainier or Bing or whatever. Um, if you can imagine that without having a pit in it, you go from something that is sort of a complicated process to eat and you might steer away from it in certain situations to one that could be really, really easy. So if you think about uh, what sort of drives people to make food selections in the grocery store, a lot of it is really around convenience. And I think there's a great story that is there with the baby carrots. Um, So 
prior to the introduction of those little baby carrots, which are not, in fact, babies, right? They're, they're really just, originally, they were the waste product of uh, the carrot manufacturing process. So those were the pieces that were broken off of the larger carrots and couldn't be used in a bag. And what they did was they came up with a way to basically roll those carrots around and basically a big concrete drum, right? And just shave them down to little bite-sized things that are the perfect delivery vehicle for ranch dressing. Mm. And they took those and they put them in a bag. They're washed, they're ready to eat, and it's extremely convenient. And it drove up the consumption of carrots uh, by several times what it had been prior to there being baby carrots out there. And that's an example of how convenience can really have an impact on the way people make decisions of what they're eating. And so if you think of something well, like what about the uh, what, what about the food waste problem? You know, a lot of produce gets thrown away because it has blemishes or bruises or doesn't look perfectly ripe. Why not? Why not point the attention that way so that we can, uh, you know, stores will accept more produce and we won't throw so much stuff away. Sure. Uh, you know, reducing food waste is, is always a good thing to be working towards. In a lot of those cases, those items that do have the bruises, the blemishes, the apples that have some sort of surface defect, they already wind up in a cut food. And so they wind up being cut and prepared and, and packaged up in a way that the consumer can get them um, that, that sometimes goes towards them. Um, but it really doesn't drive um, at a cost point, you know, the consumer selecting those all the time. So if you look at those prepared foods, um, they're typically quite expensive. The other place that those sort of blemished foods typically go is into the something that would be very, very processed, you know, something that was cut up into small pieces and used in a canned product or in a frozen product or in a jam if it was a berry or an apple or something like that. But that would be one other way to do it. But gene editing gives us the ability to um, think about how you could have that done on a large scale and get people eating healthier um, and making better choices in the grocery aisle because that fruit is actually convenient. What about gene editing so that the fruit uh, or the uh, the edible part of a plant doesn't pick up pesticides like glycophosphate, you know, and other things like that? Because that's, uh, you know, we're told to wash certain fruits, for instance, because they, you know, they likely to contain pesticide residues on them or in them. So why not engineer, uh, you know, fruits so that they reject that? And then we have healthier yeah. produce as well. Yeah, that way so you should always wash your fruit. That's a good piece of advice. Um, anything fresh that you eat like that. Uh, I think the route to go there would be trying to engineer the plants so that they were actually resistant to the uh, pests in the first place, and so that you wouldn't need to um, you wouldn't need to actually spray them with the pesticides at all, and the plants could take care of the insect or the pathogen on their own. And that's a really complicated piece of science. There's a lot of universities and a lot of private companies working on that out there, um, and it is a possibility that is enabled by gene editing that we can tap into all this natural genetic diversity that's out there and then begin to collect it together in the right way, putting it together in the right packages so that we can have these plants that have required inputs like pesticides and herbicides. I mean, I would think that a lot of, uh, you know, plants and things we eat have already been engineered or at least selectively bred to be sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. And, you know, now I guess we want to take it down a path of uh, easier to eat. Is that how you'd sum it up or is it something different? It's easy to eat, but it's also that nutrition component. You want to give people that variety of things that are, that are healthy for them and uh, easy to consume. And you're exactly right. That's what, uh, over the last, you know, several thousand years of human history, humans have been selecting on different plant species for lots of different things. Uh, you know, one is primarily yield, you know, making the plants produce more. 
Another one is the ability to just grow the way that we want to grow them as opposed to the way that they grow in the wild, and whether that's changing the shape or the architecture of the plant, making them flower at different times, selecting those mutants that were naturally occurring in the wild that did those things. And then that last one is obviously the taste and the flavor profile in the fruit. We selected for fruits and vegetables to be bigger over time, generally versus their wild counterparts. We really do like the color that comes with them all. We do like the taste of the sweetness that goes with it. Um, you know, a lot of breeding programs over the past are, were, are they're complicated to run, and you can't select on everything at once. And so in some instances, those different aspects have been lost, you know, whether it be a little bit of the taste was lost during the breeding process or um, a little bit of disease resistance. Gene editing gives us the ability to do two things that I think are pretty unique, you know. So one is really say, let's look at what we have today and think about how we want to make those better. And instead of going through a process of perhaps breeding that plant for 20 or 50 years, we can do that much, much quicker with gene editing by reintroducing some of that genetic diversity that's been lost. The other place that's really cool is we can begin to explore different crop species that uh, haven't been sort of a part of the mainstream of food production. And usually that's because either there's something uh, that prohibits them from coming into the agricultural system, like the restricted way that they grow or they don't produce enough when they do grow. And we can begin to think about uh, doing what some people are calling molecular domestication, which is really bringing in everything we know about what makes a plant a good food source for human and to grow well in an agronomic system. Mm. We can apply that knowledge through gene editing to bring that plant into the human food production system. I think this is pretty cool because uh, it can even work for things that are sort of marginal or that, or that we're just eating in a part of the world. It can give us a chance to grow in other places. Well, there's also the time factor. Like I've read that asparagus takes three years to get, you know, and a lot of fruit trees will take, you know, three to five years to mature before they bear fruit. And I haven't found yeah. the answer as to why that happens or what the mechanism is. So if you were able to somehow shorten that mechanism to, uh, you know, to tell a, a bush or a tree, hey, it's time to put out fruit in the first year, that could dramatically affect the availability of certain, uh, you know, certain fruits or certain items. Yeah, that's exactly right. The uh, asparagus is a great example of that. You know, you, you grow this plant, you grow it, um, you you have a one-year crown, you have a second-year crown. Usually that second year, you can do a light, light harvest, but in that third year is when the plant's really productive. Same thing is true for apple trees. They're just, they're slow-growing trees and the trees don't flower, um, usually until they're about five years old. Um, to give you an example, you know, the that new cosmic crisp apple that Washington State has talked so much about, and they've planted, I think, about 10 million trees dedicated to bringing this new variety to market next year. Um, that plant was first, they made the cross that produced that plant back in the late 90s. And here we are almost uh, 25 years later, and we're just coming to the fruition and seeing it being offered to the consumer for the first time. So we are really trying to apply our, our knowledge about molecular genetics and how genes function to take some of those things out as well with gene editing. And that's when we start to think about, you know, how does it grow in a production system? Um, to your point about the flowering, the last several years have been uh, pretty exciting uh, for that whole space. There's been a whole suite of work. Um, there was a, a search that went on for my entire adult life and long before that with people looking for a compound called Florigen, which was supposed to help uh, trees and all plants in general be responsible for flowering. And it was supposed to behave like a hormone uh, and like the other plant hormones that you hear about, like ethylene that helps fruit ripen or psychic acid, gibberellic acid that help plants grow and develop. 
Um, and they had a really difficult time finding it. But what it turns out is that uh, they now know the genes that are involved in this. Um, and you know, if you ever look around at the loci called um, FT, which is the flowering time locus, and, and TFL, which is a repressor of that, there's been a huge amount of work that has exploded over the last seven or eight years, really looking at how all of these things interact and how they integrate environmental signals to help make the determination about when it's right to go from being a juvenile plant to being a sexually mature plant and enter reproduction. Yeah, and then within a, within the time period where they are mature, um, how do you get them to fruit maybe twice a year instead of once or in a different season than to which they're accustomed? Yeah, that is, uh, that is again, a great example. I think we can learn a lot by starting to harness the power of the natural diversity that's already out there. So there are some pretty cool cases uh, where we've taken through the breeding process and selected these natural mutants and made that happen. So a great example of that is uh, blueberries. Blueberries, when I was a kid, were these things that uh, you had for a very limited time of the year, and they were even pretty regional within the U.S. And now you can go anywhere, any hotel, breakfast bar where they've got some yogurt. Chances are that they've got some blueberries. You know, they're in the salads at Starbucks. And you can get them 365 days a year, no matter where you are. Uh, that was accomplished by creating plants that actually could grow and flower in the south of the U.S. and in different regions, so that there's a continual supply that's now available across North America and South America. Hmm. Uh, same thing as strawberries. When you talk about the June-bearing and ever-bearing, those ever-bearing strawberries have a mutation in that uh, TFL locus that actually allows them to keep on developing flowers throughout the summer. And as we learn more and more about that, we can think more and more about a, from a design perspective, how we want to bring in the different components of those systems into those plants that we do want to eat. So what's driving um, which crops or plants will be worked on and, and engineered and uh, you know, manipulated? Yeah, the you know, economics is obviously a huge, huge driver of that. So people are trying to understand, us included, where the value is in uh, the gene editing proposition. And a lot of the different companies that are out there um, are taking different strategies. Uh, there's people working both in the consumer space, but also in this row crop space that I mentioned earlier. So a lot of companies are focusing on things like oil profiles and trying to figure out how to bring healthier oil to the market. Um, companies like us are focusing on uh, more nutritious produce and figuring out how to get nutritious produce into the hands of the consumer. Uh, but it's really about that uh, that value proposition and believing that you have um, you can create something that is really going to have a positive impact on people's lives. Mm. Okay. So again, what what are the uh, the major products or uh, or plants that you're working on? Is it cherries or is that just an example? Yeah, that's just an example. Um, you know, right now we're okay. we're still in that early exploratory phase. So whenever you go in and you look at working on one of these plants. Chances are it is that not a ton of work has been done on the plants in the laboratories before. And so there's a period that you have to go through. You have to take that plant. You have to learn how to cultivate it in the settings you've got available to you. And the ones you have it cultivated, you have to learn how to help that plant sort of make the transition to the laboratory. And what I mean about that is there's a, there's a whole bunch of tools that you have to use in this process, the gene editing tools. And the biology of all these organisms is different. And so what you have to do is figure out and test the tools and figure out how to get them to work in these. And then once they work, you can go ahead and do that. But lots of times you run into showstoppers that uh, can't necessarily be overcome or would require more work to overcome than 
you think would be possible or feasible or, or economically uh, viable. And so right now we're going through and learning what we can about uh, the performance of the tools and figuring out how we can make um, the best tools go forward in, in some of these unique species. So, you know, are you, have you identified what you want to work on? Are there any, um, I guess, big bad problems out there that you want to tackle first? Or, uh, you know, is that proprietary? Yeah, so what we're focusing on is really trying to nail it down to ones where, um, you know, maybe there's a product there that's in the supermarket aisle today uh, that is a is an okay food, but it has a few really big hangups. And then some of those hangups could be around uh, it could be around the taste. It could be around the convenience of the way that you eat it. It could be around its production system. And uh, what we'd like to do is bring really spectacular options back to the consumer from those. We haven't nailed down the exact ones that we're working on yet. We're really evaluating about three or four right now. Okay. Is there any out there that are, uh, you know, that everyone's kind of looking at and looking to tackle? Are there certain, you know, items of produce that, uh, it seems, you know, like lately, like apples have made an explosion in stores and there's, Eight million kinds of apples. So perhaps that's what's been worked on recently. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not aware of any uh, and apples. Um, you know, the apple has undergone this explosion of varieties. Um, you know, the flavor, sort of everyone's excited about the flavor coming back versus the red delicious that used to be there. Um, that apple's finally been replaced by all these other things. Um, the places that the consumer will probably see first, the ones that have gone through uh, the regulatory process. Um, is actually that non-browning mushroom. So they've created a mushroom, like in the other company, they've created a mushroom that, uh, it's a white button mushroom that doesn't brown. Uh, and so it can be cut and prepared and go into a salad and still maintain that nice color without having the browning. Uh, the only other big one that's out there is actually in, so far is in field corn. Um, and that was, you know, the modification of the, the starch profile in corn. But that's not directly for the consumer. That's more of a commodity type trait one. In the next couple of mm. years, however, we'll start to see probably a lot more um, a lot more products coming through the USDA's uh, deregulation process and exemption process uh, that will be targeted towards the consumer. But we're not quite there yet. The technology has really been lagging behind in plants. There's been a lot of focus in the human space and getting it to work for human therapeutics. And the companies now that are affiliated and working on agriculture are really diving in at this point and trying to get those tools going. Okay. Well, very good. So what looks, what's going to be happening in the next uh, year or two with your work? What are you, what some of your milestones? Yeah. So some of our uh, big milestones are getting proof of concept data and these different plants that we're pursuing. So as we go through and evaluating them, we'll be looking to see if uh, we can create the edits and we're excited to actually, um, be able to see some of the phenotypes. And so we'll have new plants that we'll be looking at in the greenhouse. Uh, some of the other milestones that we have are really, um, since we are running the two tracks of also working on this collaboration with Bear Crop Science is really delivering, uh, delivering uh, value to them and hoping that we can bring new traits into their row crop business uh, that help with you know things like disease resistance, um, performance under drought, nitrogen stress, those sorts of things, protecting yield when there's some sort of environmental or biological stress being applied. But the big ones for us are really, again, on the consumer side and getting the proof of concept material out there so we can understand where we think that there's a pathway to commercial development. Mm, okay. Well, very good. So what's the best way for people to find out more about uh, Pairwise? 
Yeah, so the best way for people to find out more is um, you can uh, look at our website, which is just www.pairwise.com, or um, you're more than welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. All right, well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great talking to you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.